We've been working our way through the book of Mark. If you've been uh, with us for the last few months, you would know that. If you're new this morning, that's, that's what we've been up to. We've been preaching through the gospel according to Mark, and we've entitled the sermon series Mightier Than I because in the very first chapter of Mark, John the Baptist, he's the, the forerunner, um, the, the prophet who was to make a way, prepare the way for the Messiah. And when he sees Jesus, he exclaims, behold, the one who is mightier than I. And he gives us this little sneak peek right at the very outset of, of Mark that this Jesus, this Messiah, uh, who Mark is introducing us to, he is the mighty one. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another self-help guru. He is King Jesus. He is the, the Messiah who we've been waiting for. He is the mightier one. And uh, so that's, that's why we called it Mightier Than I. This week we're going to go to Mark chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. And we're going to be looking at chapter 11 starting in verse... Um, 12, well, we'll start in verse 11, and then we'll go all, all the way up through verse 25. No, we'll do verse 12. I will read verse 11, and if you have a Bible open, you get verse 11. But if you're looking at the screen, you, you don't get verse 11. So there you go. Bring your Bible to church. <laughs> Kidding. Here we go. And he entered Jerusalem, that is, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who uh, brought, bought in the temple. Those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We'll stop there. So Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, We've been building up to this for about, what, three chapters, five pages. He's been making his way down to Jerusalem. And it's, there's been a bit of a buildup. This is a climactic moment in the story. Um, we didn't read the part leading up to verse 11 or 12, but it says that when he entered the city, there was this like royal procession. Uh, it was a, an obvious fulfillment of ministry. He, he had a, a colt that he sat on. 
they, they spread their, their cloaks on the ground. They lay out palm branches. Uh, it it would, would have been as if a new emperor was entering the capital city and the people were shouting out Hosanna, which means God save us. And it was like the king has finally arrived in the city. It said he went straight to the temple to check things out. And then he went home. He left the city and he spent the night in a little village called Bethany with his disciples, probably the house of, of Lazarus. Fairly anticlimactic. You would have thought that, you know, after the royal procession and after he finally entered into the temple, something spectacular would have happened. And it would seem almost as if Mark is wanting to create this anticlimactic moment because once again, Jesus is not who anyone expected. The next day, he comes back. On his way, he sees a fig tree. From a distance, it's in leaf. If you know anything about fig trees, which I don't, but I work the Google. <laughs> a fig tree in leaf, uh, it means that there should be some kind of fruit on the branches. As he got closer, he realized there was no fruit, and so he cursed the tree. Then he goes into the temple. He goes straight to the merch section and begins flipping tables. Good first day, Jesus. Good first day. Cursed an innocent plant and flips tables in the merch section at the temple. Of course, the authorities are uh, threatened. It says they fear Jesus because everyone was looking on with astonishment. They were impressed. They were, they were waiting to see what Jesus would do next. Clearly, Jesus was a threat to the, the system, the temple worship system that the priestly aristocracy had developed. And then he leaves. What on earth is going on? What is Jesus doing? The king's first day on the job. What's going on here? Well, first of all, he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So he's actually quoting Isaiah, the prophet. Um, so he's actually ironically doing exactly what everyone should have expected. Um, Jesus is fulfilling Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This one's actually on the screen. Check this out. Malachi, who was the last prophet to speak prior to the coming of the Messiah, said this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You might recall, but this is where we started about 20 weeks ago. This is John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Fuller's soap, um, apparently it's what the person who cleans lamb's wool would use to, to make the wool white. For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Verse three, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, that is the priest, and will refine them like gold and silver. In verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner or the foreigner or the pilgrims who make their way to the temple. 
The reason why Jesus started flipping tables in the temple was to deal with the hypocrisy of the priestly aristocracy. They had, over time, taken what was supposed to have been a place for all nations to come and worship, to pray, to meet with God, to enter into the presence of God, to offer sacrifice. That was the deal with the pigeons. They had taken this temple and they had created a system that, in fact, made it virtually impossible for the sojourner or the pilgrim or the foreigner coming to worship. They had made it virtually impossible for that to happen. Now, here's the irony. The, the, the money changers, the tables that they had set up in the temple, that was all meant to actually facilitate a way that the foreigners, or the Gentiles, if you will, were able to actually, at some level, participate in temple worship. They would have come with their foreign uh, currency, different kinds of money. If they were living in the Roman Empire, they would have come with Roman currency, which would have been like dirty money. And so they created a way for people to come and exchange their defiled currency, as it were, so that they could get temple currency, buy sacrifices, and participate in worship. But the whole thing had just become corrupt. In fact, there wasn't a whole lot of worshiping going on. You can read the commentaries. But it was just a racket. It was a system that had gone bad. A system that arguably had been set up with good intention. Like, let's create a way for everyone to, to participate, to get involved. But it becomes something else. There wasn't a whole lot of worshiping going on, but there was a bit of rich getting going on. And the priestly aristocracy was loving it. Jesus was not. The very place that was meant to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer for everyone who would come had become a place where people were being robbed of the opportunity to meet with God. I call it grace robbers. Let's talk about grace robbing. Um, as I was meditating on this passage, I, I, I think there's a few different ways that we could sort of uh, think about this, draw something from it that I think would absolutely apply to ourselves. Um, because guys, I don't know if you've ever experienced this in, in our worship setting. Not necessarily Grace City, maybe probably Grace City, but in, in our, our modern experience of worship, of the American church, as we like to say, the Western church. But we often start out with great intentions, trying to build something, start a church, a community, a gathering that's meant to be a, the place where people can come and experience God. Whatever you believe, wherever you're coming from, whatever you don't believe, wherever you're at, this is meant to be a place where anyone can come and experience truth, grace, Ultimately, hopefully, new life in Jesus. But we, us humans, have this tendency to often start out with good intentions, but over time, we do the human thing, and it can become corrupt. And the very thing that was meant to facilitate people experiencing God, bottlenecks, and turns into a wall. We end up robbing people the opportunity to actually meet with God, we become grace robbers. So I think it absolutely applies to us. I want to talk about three different forms of, um, let, let's call it currency, because that's what was happening in the temple. Number one, the currency of trending liberalism, aka faux grace. Trending liberalism sounds something like this. God loves you. All he wants is a relationship with you. If you accept his offer, you will experience the fulfillment of all of your deepest desires. And all you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart and say a prayer. Romans 10, 9, boom. 
Mm -hmm. But what does that say about my sin? I believe in Romans 10, 9, 100%. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and came back from the dead and you will be saved. But context, meaning, what, what, is, what is that really? Faux grace says it's simply as simple and simplistic as that. All you have to do is pray a little prayer, feel a little feeling in your heart, invite Jesus in, and you're done. That's it. But what, but what about like all of my dysfunctionality? What about my greed? What about my addictions? What about, what about what I did last night? What about my brokenness? What about my sinful, self-absorbed, evil habits? What, is, what, is, what does grace have to do with that? What if I did say a prayer? What if I do believe in my heart? But what if I'm still addicted to pornography? What if I'm still cheating on my spouse? What if I'm still as greedy as all get out and as self-absorbed as anyone else? Faux Grace would simply say, hey, it's, you're good. You're good. Grace, just grace, grace. Just, just ask God to forgive you again. And it's good, grace. Grace is so much bigger and more robust and transformative than that. Grace does something. It doesn't just get us out of jail for free. Some of you will be familiar with this, um, but I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, uh, what he says in his The Cost of Discipleship. Anyone read that? Well worth the read. But he talks about cheap grace. In fact, he mentions this phrase, cheap grace, in the very first sentence of his book. He says this, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It is the justification of sin without justification of the sinner. It is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living an active, working, changing, sharpening, growing us up to look like him. When we come to the cross, our sins are forgiven by grace through faith in him. Full stop, I'm not trying to add to that. But the implications, what happens as we arise from the cross, what happens as we're raised up with him in Jesus is utterly, radically transformative and will affect every aspect of our lives. It's not just a get out of jail free card. It's the kind of grace that changes us. It is the power of God at work in our lives. It's beautiful and very uncomfortable all at the same time. It teaches us to live the cruciformed life. You ever hear that phrase, the cruciformed life? Our lives begin to resemble a life that looks like dying to ourselves every day and living for God's glory and for blessing others. The grace of God, it is not cheap. It is costly. It calls us to surrender our lives so that we can be forgiven for free because Jesus already paid for that. And it cost him everything so that we too might lose our lives and live like him, also pouring ourselves out. And what a joy that is. It's a joy. It's actually what the Bible calls freedom. So that's what I call, and I call, I, I, I've made up all of these phrases. I call, I call it trending liberalism. Because here's the thing. And there's this idea that because we're saved by grace, 
one might argue that whatever is the latest sort of um, thing that society has decided, like, no, no, that's no longer PC. Like, you can't call that thing or that habit or that whatever that person might be doing sin because we're, we're enlightened now and we're, we, we've moved past that. Like, how archaic and crude. And, like, I don't want to get personal here. Should we get personal? I can tell you about my own life. Okay, there's certain things about my life that I, I could go to this little cultural pocket or this, the other, I could listen to this teaching and I could find ways or people who will affirm the way I want to live or the way I'd like to sin. Um, and of course it varies depending upon the, the culture you're living in or the, the, the time we're at. And it's, it's a trending phenomenon. And we call it grace as if it's like this, this, uh, this liberated sort of way of living. But really, it's fake grace. It's not the kind of grace that changes our hearts and sets us free to live in a way not to please myself, but to please my creator. To be the person that he's given me life to be in the first place. And so in essence, when we try to give people faux grace, we're stealing true grace from them. We're saying, just settle for this. And no one will ever bother you about your little personal sin habit. Because who wants to talk about that? God wants to talk about that. In fact, he does talk about it a lot. Let's go to the next one. I call this one pious perfectionism, a.k.a. no grace. This is the extreme opposite of faux grace. Um, a lot of people, they sort of look on at the church, and I'm speaking in, in generalizations here, but you look on, you're like, oh, wow, the church in America, it's gotten so liberal. You know, they don't talk about the things that the Bible speaks plainly about and the things that, that are about, you know, you hear this kind of thing, you're like, oh, you know, those liberal, you know, apostate churches, and we like to slam on, you know, each other, and, and these kind of things. And so, sometimes people will swing to the opposite, opposite extreme. So, look, we just got to lock it down. We got to lock it down, and we got to make sure that we, like, get all of the sin out of the church, and if that means, like, throwing a few people out with the sin, like, we got to do what we got to do. And we can end up creating these sort of, like, like Christian ghettos, that are, that are only for those who are perfect or can at least look perfect. And of course, they will espouse grace. You can't call yourself a Christian church and say, no, no, we don't do grace here. That would be, no one's gonna fall for that. And yet, in practice, we can say, yeah, yeah, there's plenty of grace here for you as long as you're willing to sort yourself out before you show up on Sunday. As long as you're willing to toe the line. As long as you're willing to, at the very least, like, present yourself as holy. And, you know, we just won't talk about the stuff that's, like, killing you inside. Pious perfectionism, a.k.a. no grace, says get yourself cleaned up, then we'll talk grace. It's what Paul, he, he writes this in 2 Timothy 3.5, he says there's some who have the appearance of godliness and yet deny the very power of God. This is what was the whole fig tree thing, kind of weird. Jesus does this quite regularly. It's an acted Parable. Sometimes he tells stories and sometimes he just demonstrates it based on like what's around him. And it often seems to be like agricultural stuff. So he curses this tree because it's from a distance, it's all leafy. It looks good. Like, wow, this, those must be like serious Christians. Because you get, I mean, just from a distance, like everyone's in suit and tie. I mean, they sound right. They, they present themselves right. In the gathering, everyone's super friendly. It looks like, wow, you guys really got this whole Christian thing 
on lock. But if you get a little bit closer, you're like, eh. Like there's no fruit. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. Zero patience, kindness, gentleness, no. There is no fruit, only the appearance of godliness. And that is pious perfectionism. Looks good from a distance, but no fruit under the leaves. Which one would you prefer? Trending liberalism or pious perfectionism, if you had to pick? Which one do you lean towards? Do you tend to get more disgusted with like the, the pious perfectionist and say, look, we just need to like relax on the sin stuff. Like, can we stop talking about that one week? It's really hard when we're systematically working through the Bible. Or you're like, no, I'm sick of those liberals. I'm sick of this city. I'm sick of all the blah, blah, blah. And so we just need to like go over here and we need to get serious and we need to start kicking people out of the church is what we need to do. Faux grace, no grace. Let's go to the next one. I call this one social tribalism, a.k.a. ethereal grace. Ethereal grace or cosmic grace or space grace, if you prefer. (laughs) It's the idea of, okay, so here's the church that's perhaps got a relatively like good grasp on like what grace actually is. It's a free gift from God. It's, it's the result of something that God has done for us. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. God, God just, he's just, he gifts his children grace. It's how I'm saved. It's how I stand. It's how I follow my king. Um, it doesn't water down the power of grace to transform. It doesn't cheapen grace. And nor does it veer over into some, some sort of like perfectionism where you've got to be perfect in order for this grace thing to actually be real. Or if you're not perfect, clearly it's because you've not received grace or you're not actually serious about it. So let's say, let's say we're actually someplace right here in the middle. Let's say we're biblical. Space grace is when like in theory... Like we, we've, we've, got good, we've got a good theology of grace. We understand grace well, but when it comes to actually like working it out on the ground, we're constantly drawing lines. We're constantly building walls. We're constantly in our actions, in our language, in the way we dress, in the, the things that we say, in our little traditions, in our cliques, in our, in our preferences, And all of these things that we think are right and proper about how Christians should ask and what the church should be like, practically, we can be just as bad as either other extreme. So there's a big difference between having a good, robust, biblical theology of grace and actually applying it on the ground. Like in our relationships, when we actually get together. There's a great example of this in the Bible. You guys want to hear it? Why not? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, because Cephas is, uh, is Peter. It's Peter. Paul's writing, and he's talking about when the apostle Peter came to Antioch. Antioch is where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Acts chapter 11, I believe. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, right? You guys know Barnabas? He's like one of the coolest guys in the New Testament. But even 
Barnabas was led astray. Here's what's happening. So when the gospel began to go out, when it began to, to, it started in Jerusalem and it began to extend throughout Samaria, Judea and to the ends of the earth, it, it finally reached like the Greek world and Gentiles, non-Jews, non-circumcised people were being added to the church. Now, the Jews, of course, and this is probably a whole other thing, I mustn't get too, too off on this, but Old Testament followers of Yahweh, Jews, monotheistic God lovers, they understood grace. This is such a common misunderstanding about the Bible and Old versus New Testament. The Old Testament is riddled with examples of grace. God just in his mercy saying, I'm going to save you. Why? Because I love you and I'm God. Who are you to question? Okay, it's my prerogative. I want to save you, I'm going to save you. Okay, deal with it. Grace, it's beautiful. He does it all throughout the Old Testament. It's amazing. So the Jews understood grace, but part of the, the difference before Jesus came, before God's people entered into this new blood covenant, a covenant that was actually made possible through the blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb, the true lamb of God. One of the differences was, is that a Jew would be, by grace, welcomed into the family of God, but the way the rest of the world would know that they were a covenant member of God's family were through particular uh, like markers, signs. For example, circumcision, huge, huge deal. Kosher diet, another really, really big one. In fact, those are the two big ones, circumcision and kosher diet. There was many, many other things, but if you did those two, then the world would look on and say, oh, you're, you're a follower of Yahweh. You are a child of God. You're in the family. But if you don't do those things, then you're, you're lacking like, it's like you, you're not wearing the family ring. There's no way of, of, of being distinguished. Now in the new covenant, you know what the new sign of family membership is? Don't say baptism. It's the spirit. Jesus said that you will be circumcised in your heart. And this is a work of the spirit. So the new family sort of signet ring, if you will. It's a heart that's been filled with the spirit of God. And by the way, this is where the fruit of the spirit comes. This is, this is how you, on a very practical level, can tell someone has been filled with the spirit because they exhibit the fruit of the spirit. And if they don't exhibit the fruit, um, well, then you have to really wonder, like, are you actually saved? Have you experienced God's grace? If there's no evidence in your life, then just wake up, repent, and get right with God. That, that would be my advice to you. Um, so where was I going with all this? Social tribalism, the, the sign of the new covenant. Oh, yeah, so now Gentiles were being added into the family of God, and there was a lot of confusion about, but what is, what is the new sign? Like, okay, great, we know, we know, even as Jews, we know that it's only by grace that anyone is added into the family of God. We all agree on that, and we agree that it's through the blood of Jesus that this new covenant has been formed. But you still got to get circumcised, right? Like, you still have to maintain kosher diet, right? And this was the big controversy, uh, in Acts 15, you can read about a big council that was held in Jerusalem. And they had to decide, like, do Gentiles also have to get circumcised? Do Gentiles also have to keep a kosher diet? Don't laugh. Don't laugh. <laughs> At least I didn't fall off the stage. And the conclusion was, no. No, they do not. Because the new, the sign of the new covenant it's a heart that's filled with the Spirit. Look at these Gentiles have obviously already received the Spirit. So why would we impose these other things on them? Now, but there was a lot of controversy about it. Paul, who wrote, was writing to the Galatians, he was not confused about this. Even Peter, who was at the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, was not confused about this, which is why Paul called him out to his face. 
He says, look, Peter, you know, we've, we've been over this. You know that the Gentiles don't have to get circumcised and they don't have to keep kosher diet. So why are you withdrawing from the Gentiles now that your Jewish buddies from Jerusalem have showed up? Because you, you're afraid what they're gonna think about you. You're afraid that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna see you associating with non-Jewish believers in Jesus and they're gonna look down on you. And so what's happening? It's a tribal line, a divide, a cultural barrier that's being set up or held onto that's actually keeping believers from experiencing the, the life, the family of God. Those old sort of cultural things were becoming extremely problematic. And guys, we do this all the time. We might all agree on grace. It's, it's what makes the Christian life so utterly unique and powerful. We're not told how we're just, you know, act this way and perhaps God will accept you. We're not told that if you want to become who you dream of becoming, just tap into the power within and unlock your potential and you can become whoever you want to be. That maybe works for some, maybe. But the beauty of the gospel is that the power I need to become who God has created me to be isn't somehow buried deep inside. It's found in God himself and he freely gives us everything we need in Christ to become who we all long to be. Loving people, people who gladly, joyfully lay our lives down for God and for others. And it's a free gift. That's, that's amazing. We can all agree on that. But I'm telling you, us humans, us people, we have a really bad habit of on the ground in very practical ways, creating divides. <laughs> I gotta tell you a funny story. This uh, something that happened to me uh, quite a few years ago, many years ago, so I'll tell, I'll tell the story. I went with my dad to a men's retreat. This is an example of, of what we do. I went to, with my dad to a men's retreat. This was back in California many years ago. And uh, if you've ever been on a men or women's retreat, you know they always have some kind of theme, usually. And the theme of this one was um, something to do with like worshiping God without any inhibitions. Who cares what, what people think? And the passage that he was drawing his talks from um, in the Old Testament, I can't remember exactly where it is, but David, it says the King David danced mightily before the Lord. He was like leading a parade and it says that he, he stripped down to nothing but basically his underwear and he was just dancing like free, uninhibited before the Lord. And it says his wife at the time was like, put some clothes on, you're embarrassing yourself and me. And he's like, I don't care. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm just, I'm going for it. And so he's preaching, he's telling this, and he's like, men, this is how we must be. We must be like David, and we must worship without inhibition. We must just, we just forget about who's around you and just live your life for the glory of God. And it was all very inspirational. And the final, you know, Saturday night is when everything, it's the big moment. And uh, Saturday night, he's giving us talk, and he's really going for it. And he says, okay, men, this is what we're going to do now. He's like, I'm going to play a song, and you may have heard of it. Um, it's like back in the early 90s, so this song they got, went out there called Pray Naked. And he's like, I'm going to play this song, and man, I challenge you. I want you to dance mightily before the Lord, and I want you to set aside all inhibitions, and I want you to just worship with all your heart. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like, where is this going? <laughs> and my dad is standing right next to me, and I can just feel the awkwardness. It's like, it's just like, it's palpable, like in the room. And I'm partly amused and partly terrified for my dad because me, I'm like, dude, I don't know what is about to happen, but I'm like down. Like, this is going to be crazy, man. Like, this is just going to be nuts. My dad, not so much. He's just like, I can just tell he's like getting stiff. And I'm like, man, where's this going? So sure enough, he's like, I'm going to put on this song. And, you know, you, if you want to take your clothes off and get in your underwear, if you want to, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is like, this cannot be real. And so sure enough, like all the young men 
start a little mosh pit up front. They take their shirts off and start like moshing. The guy on stage, he takes his shirt off and I'm like, whoa, like that's, that's not helpful. Someone decided to start a conga line around the room. So I took my shoes off and jumped in the conga line. Meanwhile, my dad is just like, not helping him enter into the presence of God. Okay, not helping him to worship, to pray. And what it is, is an example of like, okay, great idea. Great idea. Dance like David, dance. Uninhibited. But think about how what you're doing is ostracizing certain people in that moment. Think about how the way you are are following Jesus and worshiping Jesus is actually making it virtually impossible for others to participate. You're undermining grace. You're setting up merch tables in the temple courtyard. Another not so funny example happened just the other night. I went to the Hillsong United worship concert up in Seattle. It was awesome, awesome concert. And um, something happened that was so disheartening I was, uh, I was right there in the little front area and we were worshiping and I'm, it was just, it was amazing. We worshiped for like three hours and I was so into it and it was so wonderful. And I noticed there was a woman, um, probably a little bit older than myself, just, just maybe a couple feet away from me. And she was like, uh, we're all singing, mostly in unison. And she's like just shouting, Jesus, Jesus, hallelujah. And she's kind of like in her own world doing her own thing. And like being properly loud about it. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of hard. I'm, you know, I'm trying to like focus on Jesus, but I feel like all of my attention is going to this woman. And you know, it's hard. You kind of want to judge her, but I'm like, no, don't do that. Like, and I'm just trying to focus on Jesus. The guy right in front of her, like literally like right in front of her, finally turned around. Like I'm watching all this out of the corner of my eye. He turns around with a big smile on his face. I can't quite hear him, but essentially I think he said something like, can you please stop, like literally you're shouting in my ear and I'm trying to like sing along with like everyone else. And then I saw him try to give her a hug, like, but hey, we're good, like no offense, but can you please stop shouting and just sing along? And, and then she, he tried to give her a hug and she literally pushed him away. And then it was like, oh, now all I could focus on was this little like, <laughs> this little worship altercation that was breaking out. And then, so he proceeded to just turn around. And now she went from like shouting hallelujah Jesus to rebuking this guy like to his back. Like he was like yelling at like come out of him in the name of Jesus. And he was like trying to like basically exercise a demon or something out of this guy. And there was another couple and you guys get the picture. And it was like, it was not funny at all. Like I was not amused. I was not anxious to see what was gonna happen. I was like, this is really heartbreaking. Here we are in a moment meant to actually be drawing near to Jesus, worshiping him, and someone, God bless her, I'm not trying to be mean, but she was undermining grace in that moment. She was actually because she was kind of making it about herself and not considering the people around her, how her actions, how her attitude may have been making it very difficult for others. That's, that's not grace. That's not love either. Now, I gotta wind it down here, but let me, let me ask this. How do we respond when someone draws a tribal line in a gathering like this? Like what do you do when someone does do that or something like that? Pro- probably more often than not, it's much more subtle than that. Like what do you do when someone is acting a certain way or talking a certain way that you're like, hey, that's not right. Maybe not even like entirely biblical. And it's, it's not, this is not good. Okay, this, this is going to maybe cause someone to stumble. Maybe draw someone's attention away from Jesus. Like, what do you do with that? How do you respond? This is what I'll say. Quite simply, the stronger or more mature in grace has the responsibility to bear with the weaker one. 
the stronger in faith or the more mature in grace has the responsibility to bear with the weaker one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 8. But food, again, the food example. This is, uh, this is Galatians. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat. We are no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Meaning, whatever the issue is, you may have a superior revelation. You may know your Bible better. Your theology may be more sound. And you may be looking on thinking like, hey, you're really not doing it right. Um, and so someone needs to help you. The temptation would be to turn around and just tell the person off. And of course, they'll end up just trying to either cast the devil out of you or probably just leave. And what you've done is just drawn a tribal line in the sand. Whereas the weaker one needs to be treated with graciousness, patience. Perhaps they are wrong. Perhaps they don't realize, hey, you, you realize like you don't got to keep a kosher diet anymore. doesn't matter. Eat, don't eat. It doesn't matter. It doesn't draw you near to God either way. But if me taking the liberty to eat whatever I want, if me exercising my right in Christ is going to cause someone who doesn't understand that to have like a violated conscience, then that's on me. I have a responsibility. In the same way as a father, I have a responsibility to bear with my children. I can't just simply tell them off every time they're doing it wrong. I have to bear with them. Romans chapter 14 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The stronger or more mature in grace has the responsibility to bear with the weaker one. Let's go to our final currency of grace. Christ crucified. True grace. Sounds like this. I can do nothing apart from God's loving act of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus through his death on the cross. Without grace, I'm lost. Sounds like this. Grace isn't cheap. It's free, but it's costly. It's free, but it would require that I surrender all of myself and pledge my allegiance to King Jesus, which means I don't get to pick and choose about how I'm going to live my life. He gets to decide who I am, which is a really good thing because he made me. And he gets to decide how I'm meant to act. He gives me my identity. And he teaches me to live like him. Paul writes uh, in a letter to Titus, Titus 2.12, he says, The grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. It empowers us to change. It sounds like this. There's always more than enough grace when we need it for whatever the temptation or sin we face. It never runs out where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And it also says that we're all awkward. We all have our preferences and we all think we're right. Grace should humble us to the core. And if you think you're more knowledgeable or spiritually mature than the person you're sitting next to, then you need to use that gift of grace to build up people versus building up walls that only further divide God's family into little competing tribes. The gift of grace that you've received is meant for building up. It's meant to help us to bear with one another with patience and humility. 
even when your theology's off, even when you're acting weird, even when you're being so painfully insecure and seemingly going out of your way to sabotage what would otherwise be really good relationships. Grace abounds all the more. How? Okay, let's say you say, look, I, I love that. Not the extremes, not the theoretical, but the real grace of God, the grace of God that's at work when I die with Christ, when I'm buried with Christ and raised up again with him. How? How does Jesus end the moment? It says he cursed the fig tree, he goes to the temple, he flips the table, and then he leaves, and on the way, Peter exclaims, look, Jesus, the fig tree that you've cursed, it's withered, and what does he say? He says, trust God, pray. That's what he says. He says, pray, and pray as if God's actually listening. The God who created the universe and upholds everything by the word of his power. Pray as if the one who has the ability to move mountains is listening and willing to act. Pray like that. And by the way, be ready to forgive a lot because it's gonna take a lot, a lot of graciousness towards others. Here's, here's my 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 exhortation to us as a church family. Guys, we gotta pray. Because what we've started here, what God has, has birthed here, I love it so much. I feel so, um, I just love our church family. And it, it, I love being able to say that. But I'm so aware how we have the tendency to screw things up so bad. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do a lot of things, mostly things that kind of mess stuff up. It's like marriage. When you start out, you're in love. It's wonderful. You have kids. Like, how could it ever, ever go wrong? And it does. How could this ever go wrong? How could anyone ever, ever get offended at Grace City? Like, this is just, just too good to be true, right? You're like, yeah, right. We must pray, guys, because this, this grace that we're all looking for, that God's holding out to us, it's an utter miracle. And we must continue to cry out, God, help us. Keep us healthy. Keep us gracious. Help us to be humble and patient. As I grow and mature, help me not to become haughty, puffed up, thinking that somehow I've got something that you don't. Whatever I've got is a gift, Help us to love one another. Are you guys with me? Father, help us. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.